Coming up next, a podcast with a discussion of A Room with a View. Hey everybody, welcome to The Bookening. My name is Nathan. I am your humble and obedient host. And you know what I'm doing right now? I'm talking to my good friends, Brandon and Jake, Brandon and Jake. That's what I'm doing. And so why don't I introduce them to you so that you can join into this conversation with us, dear listener. We have the scholar who's a baller of reading, Ghost Brandon himself. How's it going today, Brandon? Doing pretty well. How are you, Nathan? Do you care about having a room with a view when you're on a vacation or staying in a hotel or anything like that? I mean, it's nice. Any room that's inside of a building with no windows is pretty depressing. Would you be upset and want to trade your room like a woman? It depends on what other amenities come with that room, Nathan. But I would not be so upset, especially if I was only there for a night. I wouldn't care. But a whole summer and I'm in Paris or... Italy, yeah, I'm, I might care. Yeah, I guess a whole summer in Italy with a bad view when there's so much view to be had. Yeah, except I'm usually going to be outside and the time I would be in my room really wouldn't need the view. Yeah. I'm not one who just likes to sit in their hotel room. Well, especially if you're in Italy, why not go to the yeah the things? Well, Brandon, why don't you introduce the other person and maybe get his thoughts on rooms with views? I'm beginning to think that you have forgotten who this guy is because the last few podcasts, I think I've introduced him. Is it because you don't know who he is? I feel have like you've, you've introduced him for the past year long, or two, A long so. time, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I, 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 but I have never a, remember this guy's name. I have a theory that you just don't remember who this guy is, even though you do lots of podcasts with him. <clears throat> Why am I even here? I, <clears throat> I just, I see him all the know. time. He's the guy, he, he preaches sometimes, I don't know. Why don't you introduce him so I can get my bearings here? He he always he's, is wearing um, a black veil, though, because he's a minister. Yes. And well, he really likes Hawthorne. Ministers do need to wear their black veils. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that it's a probably, good short story? Uh, hey, it's not yeah. bad. Sure, sure, sure. Hawthorne's good. In small doses. He's like any American from that period. Good in sm- small doses. I still don't know who this guy is. What guy? Hawthorne? The- no, well, I, yeah, I know who Hawthorne is. I don't know who the third guy is. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't, I don't know who's on, on third. Well, do you know who I do know is the guy who just spoke? That's uh, J.K. Mensel himself. <laughs> Sounded like you forgot for a second there. <laughs> <laughs> J.K. Mensel. That's my name. He's J.K. the pastor who's a master of reading. Why don't you find out what he thinks about rooms with views? Beastmaster Funky Town. Beastmaster Funky Town. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely true. What do you think of rooms with a view? Do you prefer rooms with a view? I do. I do prefer rooms that have good views. Would you sacrifice for a room with a view or pay more money for a room with a view? Yes. Or angrily (laughs) demand a room with a view? I would sacrifice for a room with a view. I would pay more money for a room with a view. What kind of animal would you sacrifice for a room with a view? (laughs) All of them. Wow. All the animals. 
Well, mm-hmm. man is the most dangerous animal, as we know. I'm against yeah, sacrifice. We're not animals. Yeah. It's a lie. <sighs> Just quoting the story, the t- title of the story. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm misquoting the title of the story. It's the most dangerous game. Boy, here on a literature podcast, one star. One star. Zero stars. Well, that's a little bit unlike this podcast because we have three stars and we're going to talk to you now about Room with a View. And really, we have one bright, shining Christmas star. It's almost that time of year. And he points the way to great literature context. His name is Brandon Chasteen. He's the contextual Texan. And he's about to, I'm just guessing, let out a hail and hearty yeehaw. Yeehaw. Jake, would you consider that to have been hail or hearty? No, I think that that is well substandard. Yeehaw! And that—that's what we're talking about. Yep, more. Hail. I feel like it, I feel like we haven't. This podcast hasn't existed for at least two years. Like you just brought back so many memories with that yeehaw. Wow. Yeah, we don't make him do the yeehaw very often, do we? I think I think yeehaw needs to become standard again. All right, you're right. We're not. That. Can you fire off your six shooters too? Here we go. Now the fun part, <laughs> <Man>. folks. <laughs> the fun part is that even though I wouldn't be telling tales out of school if I said we put those sound effects in later and Brandon's not actually firing six shooters, Brandon just purely <laughs> for the pleasure of Jake and I mimed firing six shooters, and it was That's amazing. True. It was frankly, you know, he did it for our pleasure, and his goal was achieved. Achieved. It's because maximal my, pleasure achieved. The only thing we're missing is a visit from Fat Alplane, I think. <laughs> hey guys, somebody say my name. Hey Fat Alplane. Hey Fat Alplane. He's already gone, man. He just that was in passing while he was Oh. What about Britney off. Spears? I think he no, she's gone now because she she's no longer in a whatever oh, they call it. In her uh custodial yeah. Yeah. Fun fact, we actually owned Britney Spears conservatorship. <laughs> conservatorship, that's where, yeah. You're, you're yeah. Now she's, she's gone. She's no longer part well, of the large reckoning family. California legal system or whoever was in charge of that thing. Thanks a lot. Hashtag free Britney people. Yeah. You ruined it for us. <clears throat> Hashtag free Britney. Boom. How about the mysterious phantom? Is he still alive? We have I not heard from him for some time. And he I can show up soon. I can guarantee almost without a doubt, that we will not hear from him before the year is out. Huh. No, no, sir. We will definitely not hear from the mysterious phantom before the end of 2021. When do we have our next novel that a lot of people like, but we're iffy about, and some people are going to listen and actually want I us to give a serious discussion? I heard that we have discussion. a Charles Dickens novel coming up. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> if he shows think- up... I may legitimately just kill him <laughs> this time around. I think I did it last time, right? But he it's been so way, long. He's like a cat. So many, yeah, so many lives. I don't even remember how he died. I think the floor collapsed on him or something like that. I think somebody shot him. I mean, there was always lots of to do with trap doors and different levels and things like that. Anytime that goober showed up, indeed, he really was kind of a goober. Well, he'll never be on this show again. So I don't even. Doesn't know Doesn't he we're support this breath. show financially, or does yeah. he? Does he <laughs> support true. somebody? Not not to, you know, give you guys ideas, but we do have an anonymous. Well, not an anonymous. We have, we have a supporter. I think on maybe Sound of Sanity's Patreon. 
Mysterious Phantom is a supporter. Yeah. No, he is, he's, on this, he's on this podcast. He gets a shout out, I think, doesn't he? I will find out here at the end of this episode. But yeah, he, he even made a Gmail, this person. It's like, I, I won't tell you what it is, but it involves the words Mysterious Phantom and Gmail. Anyway, Brandon, we're talking about A Room with a View. We sure are. A novel that I like, I'm yeah. pretty sure, but we'll litigate it later. But although I hate the movie, by the way, the movie is by Merchant and Ivory, and it's a very classy production, and it's very, very gay, down to... This book or the movie? No, the book The book is already pretty gay, but then the movie's like, what if we just had full frontal male nudity in the gayest scene, admittedly gayest scene in the movie, which is, or in the book, which is the swimming scene, but the movie, the movie really goes for it. Old uh, Merchant and or Ivory was quite the huh. homosexual gentleman, as it turned out. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. What is here, though, and what is also there is Brandon's amazing context on, I keep wanting to say Remains of the Day. I'm, I'm going to be saying that uh, every time I try to say the title, Remains of the Day wants to come out. So, I'm going to really try hard not to make that mistake I'm, and never refer to it as Remains of the Day because it is a room with a view, but they're both a R word and then a preposition and then an object noun. And that is really hard for my brain to wrap its head around. Okay, Brandon, context. One, two, three, go. Yeah. So since we're reading a room with a view, I thought it'd be uh, best to start with a history of rooms. Okay. So are we going to watch that Brie Larson movie, Room? Yeah. So anything related to Room, we're now going to bring into this context. Next episode will be about Forster. Okay. When do we when do we think the first room was invented? Who came up with the idea of rooms Ooh. in the first place? I don't know. Adam did he build a house? What's the oh, first room? List, what's the first room in a, in the Bible? Like the first actual referenced room? Yeah, the first interior man made interior location. It's going to be a tent. Yeah. Do tents yeah, pro- have rooms? I mean, would it be the ark? Am I going too far? Yeah, you're, that, you're taking that too far, man. <laughs> Am I going too far, man? Yeah. I like to make some wild and provocative statements here on the booking. I don't know that we have any record of any rooms before the art. I mean, you can, what's the word? You can infer some rooms, probably, but. Well, look at Jake getting out his Bible. I got my, I got my Bible out, guys. I'm well, gonna... you are the preacher. Or no, 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 no. That's Ben Silzer. You're the pastor who's a master, not just of literature, but of the Bible. So. Jake is going to tell us the first recorded room in biblical history. Yes, that is something that we are going to do on this podcast. Because once you've opened that tab, you can't just close that tab. You got to drink it. <laughs> well, the first reference that could include rooms is going to be Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch when he built a city. Huh? He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So you've got a city there. Yeah. And then you've got a re- reference a little bit later to Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that, I think that, <clears throat> that, that, that's a strong contender in my humble opinion. And then you got a whole big list of people and names. And then you, yeah, you, then you're going to get Noah and his tent is going to be the next reference where we actually have a story that involves a room of sorts it's going to be uh ham and right. noah that will 
oh, the yeah. whole thing. The whole thing. Although the Ark is going to come before that, so the Ark's going to have its own rooms too. But the first story that involves rooms is going to be Noah and Ham. Hmm. Well, we don't want to make any jokes about that one, so. Let's not do that. That's true. Let's not. So. <laughs> <laughs> so further in the history of rooms, Brandon. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. I, I should say, Jake, nice try with your Bible. But if you go to Wikipedia, it says, historically, the use of rooms dates at least to early Minoan culture, about 22,000 BC, where excavations at Ark Rotari on Santorini reveal clearly defined rooms within certain structures. Well, there yeah, you go. We, we talk about one-room cabins and one-room apartments and things like that. So I think, I think a tent can count as a room. It's a defined space. Yeah. I'm there. Me too. Hashtag me too. All right, go ahead, Brandon. <laughs> We just got me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess yes. the people the people came here to hear about EM Forrester. So let's right. talk about EM Forrester. Not about Forrester. my me too lawsuit. Go ahead. Yeah. How's that going, by the way? Well, I should not have tossled my secretary's hair. Hmm. You should not have. We tried you to You should have just you. married your secretary and then tossled her hair. Yeah. Well, I married did. Meredith and tossled her hair. All right, Brandon, is that enough history with rooms for you? I think so. We went back pretty far, and the rest is, there's a lot of room to talk about ancient it. Ancient history. But, the rest is ancient oh, history. What about views? I, 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 they just stumped on his pun. That is, that is true. We should talk about views next. Well, that's easy. That, that happened in the first six days of uh, recorded history in Genesis. Yeah, that would, have been, that would have been quite the view. That would have been a nice view. It's amazing. So, anyways, now that we have a room and we have a view established, mm. what those are, what their history is, we can talk about E.M. Forster. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Yay. I was waiting for that. Hoping you'd you get to it eventually, Brandon. Were you? Yeah. You guys can definitely tell that there's a lot to talk about here. <laughs> no. It's going to be he's actually He's actually got a fairly mundane life. I'm stand for mundane. It does. So, as far as writers and the exciting things that happen... In their lives. Like, he's not a Hemingway. He's not a Dickens. He doesn't have a whole lot of stuff that happened. He was born in the late 1800s, lived to be, lived to the 1970s, actually, almost to be 100s, 91. So, he had a, a nice long life. But most of his writing happened in the first few years of his life. So, he did most of his publication between, what, 1904, I think, to 1920-ish when he did A Passage to India. And I'm sorry, when did you say he was born? 1879. 1879. So, he was like in his 20s? Late 20s, early 30s when he was writing. And then after that, he kind of fell off and didn't do a whole lot of writing. He got involved with stuff that other writers were doing. George Orwell started something for the BBC, doing some broadcasts for them, and he did a weekly book review for them as well under George Orwell's banner and so he did some things later in his life but it was really during the first part of his life that he did most of his product was he was most productive and so those are the years we're going to be concerned with um he's one of those writers that most people have heard of but probably are more likely to have seen a movie than have read his books yes you think that's fair if you've read anything you would have read a passage to india which is his last book yes and i wrote in 1924 I have seen that movie, and I saw that movie probably before I knew who E.M. Forster was, because it's just kind of a famous movie. Yeah, I've read read Howard's End, A Passage to India, and A Room with a View. Uh, Haven't read his his others, but he only had, what, six novels? He was 
fairly slim volume of work. You just Similar named to, the, the famous ones. Is there is there another? I don't one? think well, I've seen any of them. Well, there's angels. Any? Go ahead. I was just gonna say I don't think I've seen any of the movies based on his works. I think really? they were all kind of in vogue right before we became old enough to care about adult movies. It was all those like the Merchant and Ivory prestige pictures like when helena bonham carter was young and played the pretty ingenue she was the girl and emma thompson when she was young and mm-hmm. anthony hopkins they all starred in those movies like yeah before, basically before they got old and started doing cool stuff that we remember from the it's 90s. all going to be in the 80s according yeah. to this howard's end it was 92 so yeah. right howard's end and remains of the day were kind of the same movie it was weird yes because they even had the same actors in them yeah, and Anthony Hopkins is kind of playing like a repressed dude in both of them, isn't he? Yeah, he's the repressed British businessman in Howard's End, but um, still pretty similar. Yeah. So, anyways, that's Ian Forster. Yeah, great. <laughs> Those movies are all terrible, by the way, and they're all terrible for the same reason that Remains of the Day is terrible. They strip the the guts of anything. You mean A Room with a View? No, I actually mean Remains of the Day this time. Oh, you mean the Remains of the Day movie. Right, which is, I believe, Merchant and Ivory. It's the same company. And what they always do is they take the plot, the bare bones of the plot, and they follow it, and they get the dialogue and stuff in there, but they completely miss any kind of larger thematic weight or anything that actually made the book special, and they they just kind of reduce it to a Hallmark card. Like, isn't this pretty watching these British people do boring things? movies so i i those movies won lots of awards and were really popular but i i just think that they're really pretty weak and lame but anyway sorry context yeah my actual my first introduction to aim forrester was through the howard's end movie Mm -hmm. and i was not impressed but we had at the time an international student who was living with our family who was trying to push me into reading things other than dickens and so she got me should have pushed her into a well that's right. Well, she was large, so she might not have fit. <laughs> but <laughs> useful detail. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Anyway, <laughs> so did you ever see the Simpsons episode where he goes and pretends like he's at the bottom of the well, and none of the people can go and get him because the well is thirty. It's it's thirty four inches, and nobody can fit down there. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, that is an old old Simpsons episode. So, anyways, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So, she she bought me a room with a view. In fact, I don't have it near me, but I can show you guys later. It's like, it still has, it has the movie on the front. It's like one of those that they release at the same time as the movie. So, it was a pretty old volume, but... This guy got like a picture of Hopkins and Emma Thompson. No, this was a room with a view that she bought. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, whoever acted in that one. Helena Bonham Carter before she played Witch Ladies. Yeah. So anyway, so that didn't really make me want to read E.M. Forster, and so I didn't come back to him for a while. But when I did, I was like, this guy is a lot better than the movies. And so that's still my opinion. I think A Passage to India is pretty great. Passage to India is a great novel. It's also a great movie, I would say. But Really? Yeah, it's a, it's a good movie. That's the it, one I haven't seen. Right. Well, it's David Lean, the guy that did Lawrence of Arabia. And so it's, it's very epic and grand and creepy and gives you a real view of india at the time so it's it's pretty special as i recall it's been a long time since i've seen it but anyway. now that dev patel's a big actor i wonder if anybody's considering redoing apaches to india with him 
Well, it's problematic because it's written by a white guy who's co-opting their culture. I don't know how much we're allowed. Are we allowed to like that book now? Maybe it just gets I, grandfathered in because everybody likes it. I don't think we are. There's actually, so I just, I have this up here. Julian Barnes. Do you guys know who Julian Barnes is? I Post- picture a very posh British snob guy. Is he a well, he's, he's, a post, he's a postmodern novelist. He's the guy who wrote Flaubert's Parrot or... Oh, let's see. What's his other famous one? The History and 10,000. What is it? Julian Barnes. It's actually, it's pretty fun. He's like one of those playful postmodernists. I can't remember the name of his work. A History of the World in 10 and a Half Chapters, hmm. which is, pr- it's worth reading. That one's pretty fun. Flaubert's Parrot is too. He wins the Booker Prize. He's one of those guys, every time he sneezes out a novel, he wins the Booker Prize. So, do you like that image? Very much. Yep. That but anyways... He wrote recent, well, this was in 2016, his reintroduction his re- to Ian Forster because he had wrote Ian Forster off because he hated what he did with India in a passage to India when he was young. And that was at the time when all the post-colonialism stuff was happening. And then he went and reread Forster and saw what he was really good at, which is being wry and witty and fairly observant about the upper-class British society, so upper-middle-class. And so now he thinks that Ian Forster is worth reading. Yay! So just in case you guys were worried about that. We dodged a bullet there. Yeah, so we have the stamp of approval by a postmodernist who also is a postcolonial and into all the liberal stuff that we can read Ian Forster and be fine. Yay. Yay. So anyways, so he was born... In 1879, we have established that. Yes. His father died when he was fairly young, died when he was only a year old, really, of tuberculosis, and so he lived pretty much the rest of his life with his mother. Surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. And the house that he lived in for the first, like, 10, 12 years of his life was called the Rook's Nest, and you can still see it, and it's the house that would become the... Model of the House in Howard's End. And if you know anything about that book, that book's about a wife who brings this house that she has a lot of nostalgia for to her husband in their marriage. And then this other more free-spirited, artistic girl from Germany gets involved with their family and all the drama that surrounds that. I won't spoil anything. But anyways, there's a lot of nostalgia for that home and how important the home is and how important that protecting that memory of the home, especially is for a woman and for the feminine outlook on life. And oh, that was inspired by these early years with his mom at what was called the Rook's Nest. As you say that, I'm sure we'll get into this, but as you say that, it's just occurring to me yet again that E.M. Forrester really is the thing that people think Jane Austen is. Like when they adapt a movie, they adapt it in this direction because they think that that's what they just read. Ian Forrester actually does that. Like his stories yeah. are the independent woman I, blows up the whatever. I thought yeah. that the whole way through and especially as we neared the end or the second or the final third of the book, just like, yeah, every Jane Austen movie adaptation is going to steal something from this or really move in this direction. And both Pride yeah. and Prejudice adaptations steal scenes from well, this book in particular. Forrester's interesting because this is his most optimistic book. If one day, if we go back to Howard's End or one of these others, they don't have such a rosy outlook on the reality of a woman like that. Yes. Right? In, in other words, they're pretty critical even of her. 
like Howard's end doesn't have things happen in Howard's end that make you realize that he was, he had some self-awareness even about those people. And we're going to get to the, I mean, he was a part, there's, we can just get there pretty fast here. He was a part of what's called the Bloomsbury group. He was actually one of the essential members of that. And I don't think we've read one of the Bloomsbury group members yet. We've touched on the Bloomsbury group because T.S. Eliot famously was friends with them. But we've never really had a reason to talk about them in depth, so today's the day. All right. We're always introducing something new because E.M. Forster, guess what he was, guys? He okay. was a modernist. Oh, a, mo- oh, a modernist. Wait, are we going to yeah. talk about modernism? I've always waited for the day that the booking would finally, finally open that big package up and pull out the topic of modernism. And Same. Yeah. Yeah. That should be that could be a t-shirt. Today we finally talk about modernism. The book. <laughs> that would be a good That's pretty good. Couple things though before we get there. As most boys in that time, C.S. Lewis, others that cuz C.S. Lewis was growing up around the same time, had a fairly unhappy relationship to the schools that he went to, but those schools are today very proud that they went there. Right. <laughs> and so they named things after these kids, but those kids pretty much had a miserable time at their schools. So he went to some boarding schools. One really important thing that happened to him when he was young was he inherited 8,000 pounds. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot today, but see if you guys can translate that into today's money. What do you think it is? 8,000 pounds then. And what what year are we talking? dollars. You're a little high, but... A million? Yeah, about a, about a million bucks. So he inherited, before he graduated high school and went off to college, a million dollars. And this was the reason he could become a writer, right? I mean, there's, there's just the fundamental reality that like Virginia, so when he got involved with the Bloomsbury Group, this was at King's College, Cambridge in 19, 1897. I was about to say 1987. 1897, he had a million bucks that he could just sit on and write. And Virginia Woolf was similar. She was, she was upper middle class. All these kids at the time came from like upper middle class households. T.S. Eliot did as well, even though he had to struggle and work for a bank. He still had some money behind him, you know, with the old roots that he had in St. Louis. And so, that was just the reality of things for a lot of these writers is that you either found a patron or you had a family that could support your writing habit. And that's how you became a writer. And so, that looking at these guys, I mean, it kind of demystifies, yeah, they're, they're great and all that, but they had opportunities to, and you wonder what other writers we never got to see that. I mean, I guess that's the point of Jude the Obscure with Hardy, right? Mm-hmm. Or the point of A Room of Her Own by Wolf. Yeah. Yeah, I guess Virginia Wolf was kind of self-conscious about the fact, right? I think yeah. it's because Virginia Wolf kind of knew she really wasn't a very good writer, but. $1.5 million, Brandon, because you translated it only to modern pounds. One star, it's, you oh, hack. that's right, one million pounds. So, one, one point f- over one million, one point one million pounds, which comes out to about one point four five. Yeah, I mean, I think that I could live for a, dollars for a time on that. Yeah, I just felt like doing the math, or actually using the Google for half a second. Thanks, you five can, stars for Jake. You can make it for at least a couple. zero stars for Brandon. Hey, yeah, you know, I need to contribute every once in a while to these discussions, and one thing I can do is fact check you so that we get fewer one-star ratings when you screw it all up. Yeah, Somebody, thank you. Some- I really I appreciate you having my back, Jake. And yeah. I mean, that's $500,000 difference. That's significant. That's a big that's deal. Like, that's like another year's worth of partying. <laughs> At least. 
at least. I mean, that can last like three days in Joe Biden's economy. Am I right, guys? <laughs> I mean, what, what, what I actually wondered is if you got that figure from something fairly recent and it had actually skyrocketed even more due to inflation. And so I thought I'll just run calculators and fact check and see if he read that from an article or found that in a book that like is from 2018 yeah, or something like from that. From 2020 <laughs> even or 2019, yeah. then it, it could be vastly different today. So I just thought it was worth Well, here here you guys go. This is so if you have 1.5 million and put it into savings, if it's a high um, interest rate savings account, yeah. You could live off the interest at about 80,000 a year. Pretty comfortable salary. That's uh, comfortable. So, wait, 80,000. I mean, oh, right, 80,000. My, my you would just 80,000 a year will be your interest off 1.5 million. Yeah, yeah. For some my brain was turning it into 8,000 and I was like, what no, does yeah. Brandon's family live on? <laughs> Rags. <laughs> Rags, yeah. If you wanted to be a writer and you had 1.5 million in the bank and 80,000 compounding annually, to live you off do. of. You could do all right. You could do just You'd be fine. fine. Yeah. Do, I get mean, a little studio apartment, live off as little of that as you want, watch it compound, or live off as much of it as you want. I mean, goodness. Yeah. Or just live with your mom until she's 90 or whatever Brandon said. Yeah. I mean, and that is that is what happened. He moved in, They moved out of the Rook's Nest eventually, but they just moved to another part of London where he lived with her until she died. And then he moved to a little apartment until he died. So, but he lived with her until, I mean, I think he was in his 50s or 60s even. So, they had long genetics. The other thing is he, so to just go back quickly to his childhood, he came from what's the, called the Clapham sect, was part of his family history. And this is interesting because the Bloomsbury group would actually pride themselves on being able to trace their lineage back to the Clapham sect. The Clapham sect was a series of social reformers in the Church of England in the 1800s. They were really bent on reforming slavery. So their most famous member was William Wilberforce. Hmm. Hmm. So had some good people that came out of the Clapham sect. Better people coming out of that politically than would come out of them artistically in the 1900s. But anyway, so here he was. He had all this money. He really, he lived with his mom. As far as I can tell, he didn't have an elaborate lifestyle. He wasn't like Somerset Maugham, who I kind of see as parallel to E.M. Forster in the sense that he wanted to go out and have all the, like, the, the elaborate dinners and the elaborate art and all these things that Mogham tried to participate in. Ian Forster really wasn't interested in that. He did some travels. He did some things like that. But he was kind of repressed and quiet with his life. And so, I, I think that that 1.5 million that he had suited he and his mother just fine. His mother and him just fine. One star. Yeah, I know. I give myself one star for that one, too. Don't worry. Um, I'm typing it up right now. Grammatically awful. At King's College, Cambridge, he joined this discussion society, which I did some looking into, and they still exist today, called the Cambridge Apostles. And they called themselves the Apostles because at the time, there were only 12 of them. But it's an extremely, it's kind of like, is it Skull and Crossbones or whatever it is at Yale? That's mm -hmm. pretty famous. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of like that sort of society. People who are wealthy enough and smart enough get invited into it. And so it's a prestige maker. And a lot of those members, once they graduated, wanted to keep in touch. And a lot of them were able to relocate to the very wealthy, affluent, garden-rich, cute little townhomes area, like most of the gentrified areas in America today, where you have all the hipsters who... Oh, sorry. I used one of Jake's 
No, you don't mind hipster, do you? You don't like ironic. No, Jake doesn't no. like hipster. You don't it's like come hipster. back around. We agreed before that it's come back around to have some utility. Therefore, yeah, well, it didn't. For us, the way I use it and is for the original Bloomsbury group. You have all these kids that have money, but they want to live like they're artists who have no money, right? Mm-hmm. But they can't get away from the fact that they have money. Bohemian. And mm. so they try to take on the Bohemian lifestyle. And that's kind of where all these people ended up was this Bloomsbury area. And they would gather together. You had the Bells who were pretty essential to this group. And then a group of artists. And let's see if we can name some of them here. Can you hear the dog barking now? I heard it. All right. Well, I think my kids might be home. I might need to move to the move to the office. I was sitting out here so I'd have better reception. You want to say hi to him? Yeah. Here's, sure. here's Elliot. Come here, Elliot. He looks very scared. He's hey, been kid. on the podcast before. He can't hear us. Say hi. Hi. Come <laughs> uh, Jack. If I say hi, I'm going to be sure that you know I've hit puberty. Yeah. <laughs> That's Jack. Hey, Jack. What's up, man? He said, what's up, Jack? Oh. <laughs> Jack just flashed him a gang sign. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jack is a virulent racist. We should be clear about that. He does have teardrop tattoos. One star for Jack. Your kids all in the video feed at least look like pale Slytherin types. Yeah, I know. They got their school uniforms on. We are Hogwarts a Sl- We are a Slytherin household. This is going to be fun. I'm going to move. <laughs> all right, this, the whole thing, folks. Get ready We're going for, for a ride with Brandon. Content. All right, here we go. All right, he's moving. But I'm going to talk moving. while we move. So here are some of the people who were a part of the um, Bloomsbury group. We have Clive Bell. You guys can actually see my screen, but you can't see that I'm reading these. So as far as you know, we can I actually see, see your screen. It, I can see oh, that oh. It looks like a Wikipedia page. That you have look to look who's up. look who else is here. Oh, hi, oh. Anna. <laughs> That's Mrs. Chastity. You want to say hello? Uh, hi. Hi. Tell them Chastine. what do you think of VM Forrester in a passage to India? I think I liked most of that book, but the ending was really weird. There you Fair. have it from her, the voice of Mrs. Chastity herself. All right, I'm going to now have to try and... So we have this uh, dog gate. That I'm now going right, to try see you make it over while holding Climb all the... Over. Can, is Brandon smart enough to Computer get over Computer, recording gate? gear, all of it. All right, this is exciting. I'm over. You did it. You didn't even look like you stumbled. You no, yeah. The, the average canine. The, can you guys shut that door for me? No, no, they can't. Nobody's around. I don't even know who I asked. All right. Wasn't that fun? That was great. Is Good that stuff. all staying in the podcast? Yeah. I, oh, it yeah. better. It's some of the best content we've had in... At least six months. I was going to say, yeah, at least six months. <laughs> all right. So, and my connection is still fine, so... Yeah. Good. Yeah. Anyway, Good. anyway, so there were a lot of artists that were involved with this. You had the bells, the, but kind of the spirit behind it all was Lytton Strachey and Virginia Woolf, or maybe Lytton Strachey. I don't know how you say his name. He's most famous for... Well, the bells were pretty foundational to it as well. I've never actually looked up any of the Bloomsbury Group's art, but they were all they all had like their little art house shows that they would put on. They weren't necessarily known for a style. So unlike the modernists, like with uh, Ezra Pound, we've talked a lot about what he did with Vorticism and the style making he did with T.S. Eliot and with Hemingway. They were more stylistically inclined that group that got together in Paris, for example, the uh, the Lost Generation. Mm-hmm. These guys were more joined in spirit, and what they were known for 
was their commitment to a specific, they, they pointed to their Clapham background, and so they didn't want to have any respect for authority, and they wanted to be seen as contrarian, kind of living their own life, which for whatever reason, that's what they got out of the Clapham ideals that were in their blood. And they were also known for having a fairly hands-off approach to each other's moral commitments. And so there was a lot of adultery, there was a lot of lying and a lot of stuff like that that happened in the group. Very kind of in that sense, similar to the existentialists with, if anybody's ever done any studying of Sartre and Camus and uh, Simone de Beauvoir, the whole weirdness that surrounded that group. Yeah. So, so yeah, really, when you think of the Bloomsbury group, they would all get together. They would have a Thursday, I think it was either Thursday or Tuesday and a Friday meeting and they would gather and they would they wanted to be very candid with one another. One of them said, you know, if we want to be able to call someone to their face, an adulterer or a liar, then we will, and nobody will really take it all that seriously. So they wanted to be able to just joke around and live the way they wanted to live. It did come out in their art, you know, their art tended to be a little bit transgressive and a little bit trying to push the edge of things. Some of it was experimental, like Virginia Woolf. But really, when you think Bloomsbury Group, you're not thinking necessarily an artistic movement in the sense that you would think with Hemingway and T.S. Eliot, for example. There are similarities in T.S. Eliot, or even with James Joyce Eliot and Hemingway. There are similarities to what those guys were doing. And I even think when you think modernism, you really need to think more James Joyce, T.S. Eliot, Hemingway than you do these guys. Virginia Woolf, to an extent, was trying to do some of the same things. So like Mrs. Dalloway is pretty experimental with stream of consciousness. But without doubt, without any, I think, doubt, Ulysses is the better stream of consciousness book, even if you don't like that sort of thing. Never been able to make it through either one. No. Never tried. No, you're not missing much. Don't want to. What'd you say? I said Jake's the smart one. Have you made it through Ulysses and or Mrs. Dalloway, Brandon, and or both? Surely he's made it through Ulysses. He's frozen. (laughs) It's quite the pose for him to be frozen. There, there he's he back. There he is. That was an awesome pose for him to be frozen. Yeah. It was awesome. Am I back? It looked like you were in deep contemplation. Yeah, you're back. You're back. All right. Yeah, well, hang on. I am back now. But let a, me open we're going this. on another I'm trip. Just, I'm just going to open this door. We'll hear what we hear. All right. And I'm going to sit here at the piano. Play something sing, for us. Sing the rest of your projects. Play some Mozart. Play, play some Mozart? Yeah, that's what Lucy would do. For some Beethoven. All right. <clears throat> okay, I had to... Like how I had to jump over the uh, screen there to do it? Yeah. There are things in that that I dare say even Nathan can't hear. Mm. Wow, Nathan. Things in Mozart? And Brandon's playing. Oh. My wife My wife just said, did you just play the piano on the bookening? <laughs> 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 yes, dear, I did. He's a muddled soul. All musicians are. <sighs> yeah. Man. I can put into music things that I can't express with words. Yeah, so we finished the context. You actually just told us everything about uh, what's yeah, his face is I life. understood it. Yeah. Sounds like a yeah. great guy. 
So if anybody, well, <laughs> that's not what I was saying at all. Oh, oh no, you misheard. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> hey, you never told us. Have you read? I think you fro- you froze up when we asked. Have you read Ulysses in its entirety and or Mrs. Dalloway in its entirety? Both. Yes, I've yeah. read both. Mrs. Dalloway. Mrs. Dalloway is a short read, so. If you uh, can't about? make it, Mrs. If you can't make it through Mrs. Dalloway, you're just lazy. <laughs> <laughs> the t-shirt. What's the other one? What's the What's the other one? Oh, to the lighthouse. That's even shorter, though. Isn't that the short one? That That's pretty short too. Yeah, they're both pretty short. Okay. I just know that cheap Dover edition that I have of Mrs. Dalloway is pretty short. That cheap Dover edition of Mrs. Dalloway. Yeah. Well, it's all, all she right. deserved. That is yeah. all she deserved. So. There's not a whole lot more, so we've kind of got to the point now where we haven't talked about his career as a writer, I guess. We probably should do that. Hey, did you say, maybe you said it and you didn't hear, but I just, I didn't realize this except for that I happened to pull up the Wikipedia. John Maynard Keynes, or however you say that guy's name is, the famous economic... Horrible economist. The guy that basically ruined the 20th century was one of the Bloomsbury group. Yeah, that's right. He was. I mean, if you look through a list of people that were just either a part of it or associated with it, it's a... It's an impressive enough list, but not the greatest people. No, I don't know that there's one of them that I'd want to own as a as a personality or as a like, yay, this person's philosophy is good. Yeah. So he had shown really an interest in writing as a young age. And when he got to college and with this other group, they were all writers and artists. And so it encouraged him to start writing. He was a slow writer. It usually took him a while. In fact, like so... The book we've read for today, A Room with a View, started in, I think, 1904 as Lucy is what he called it. And he worked on it for the next, however long it took him to publish it. It was in, when was this one published? 1908. Yeah. So, you know, he's working on it for four years, which as far as a novel goes, that's a pretty good long time to be working on a novel. And so, that was his third book. His first book that he published was Where Angels Fear to Tread. Followed by The Longest Journey, though I'm pretty sure The Longest Journey was the one he started working on first. But anyway, so he published those, and then A Room with a View came out, pretty good hit, and then Howard's End. The one that was kind of the, that solidified his fame was Apaches to India, which he didn't really write until, didn't publish until 14 years after this. And then he wrote on, he worked on another novel called Maurice, but which wasn't published until he, was, he had died in 1971. And that one's explicitly homosexual, right? That's right, which is kind of which is why it was after he died. He was a homosexual, but he was pretty repressed about it, and even later in his life was pretty reticent about it, not too open about the fact. Like some of the others who were like Magum, for example, was pretty explicit with his acknowledgement of it. But uh, he he lived during you know World War One and World War Two, but he was a conscientious objector, didn't participate. In World War One, and instead he tried to find missing soldiers in Alexandria, Egypt. But it would be during this period that he would begin to travel some, and he would also visit India at the same time, and that's where he got what would become a passage to India. It was also during this time that he would meet a wounded soldier to whom he would lose what he called his respectability later on, hmm. when he would actually admit the fact. So... He wasn't just repressed in the sense that he actually felt those feelings. He actually gave in to them multiple times. He had some lovers who his intimate circle knew about. 
he had some close friendships, but otherwise was fairly closed off and not overly not overly active and not overly desirous of the limelight. And so there's not really a whole lot to say about him after that. I mean, he had, like I said, he got involved with some politics. He got involved with some things with Orwell, with book reviews, but really his writing was fairly limited. He did some short stories. He did some articles and things like that, but his real creative output was when he was younger. And this is along with A Passage to India, the book we've read is kind of looked at as his crowning achievement. And when you think of Forrester, is, oh, those are the two that you really look to as being his quintessential novels. But yeah, so not, not, not a really lively life after he gets back and publishes a, a Passage to India. His legacy is pretty significant. Like we said, you can see the influence of his books in even the way that we look back on romance novels or the way that we look back on the figure of the heroine. And also, he was, he was up for knighthood but turned it down. He was also nominated for the Nobel Prize 16 times and never won, which is similar to Philip Roth from America. He's been nominated many times and hasn't won, or Cormac McCarthy. I don't think Cormac McCarthy ever will win, to be honest, especially not with the way politics have gone lately. So, But anyways, he never won because he died in 1970. <laughs> <laughs> Which we get a big kick out of, apparently. Yeah. In your face. But he was, friend so he was friends with William Golding, and there was one other one that I wanted to point out, which I thought, oh, Christopher Isherwood, who you guys may or may not know, he wrote Berlin, Berlin Stories. Papers. Cabaret. Yeah. So, yep. But that is E.M. Forster, and those are kind of the big things I wanted to point out. I guess last thing I would say is that usually when we do someone in the modernist period like this, we talk a lot about the principles of modernism, but that really wasn't what he was about. Instead, he was more a part of the history of the drawing room romance that shared it, you know, went all the way back to Jane Austen. And so, as far as that goes, I, I would trace his lineage back to her. You also see, I mean, you can see some of the modernizations that he would bring into it. Some of the more, the, the, the heroine gets more freedoms, a little bit more license with what you're allowed to do and show. More romantically driven. More romantically driven. Yep. Interestingly enough, right? More effeminate in many ways. But also, you can also see just the relationship to, in, to India at the time, which was fascinating to almost every writer who was writing at this period. Rudyard Kipling would do it. And so that being sort of essential to the backbone of their work, or that at least global perspective that you would get with Graham Greene just a little bit later. I would say that he shares more in common with that line of writers, Graham Greene, than he does with the sort of experimental doings of a modernist that we would think of with like T.S. Eliot and Hemingway or with the postmodernists. He's not really that. He's more traditional. I think Ishiguro's probably follows in his footsteps as well, right? There's a reason why Nathan subconsciously links Room with the View and Remains of the Day. It's not just the rhythm of the titles and them beginning with an R. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So, this, okay. go ahead. No. I was going to say, and they were both made into movies by the same directors, right? Wasn't that yeah, Merchant and Ivory? The same team, and is Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins is in Howard's End, and then he's in... I can't get it right. It remains of the day. And so is Emma Thompson. She's in both of them. Yep. Yeah. I'm trying to remember who the other big star of Room with View is. So it's Helena Bonham Carter. Oh, you know who it is? 
It's what, what is his name? Oh, what's going on? Apparently, Jack was outside trying to climb the new electric poles that were just put in. Oh, that's probably a bad idea. Oh, yep. Don't do that, Jack. Don't he's do not that, doing Jack. it. Any, he's not doing it anymore. Hit the road, Jack. I like this new ability of being able to walk around holding my microphone. <laughs> that's pretty great. Yeah, fun. For I us. mean, I I think that I wish we could video record these and put them unedited behind the paywall. People would love it. That's really not a bad idea, and that might be a doable idea. Actually, I don't know. Well, we'll we can talk. Yeah, because more off, Mike. is it distracting? Like, are are you still getting me? I find I'm it getting, interesting. I'm, I'm There's a little it. bit of like wobble sound every once in a while, but for the most part, it's pretty good, pretty clean. Yeah. Right. What was I going to ask? Oh, I have a real aversion to anything related to high British culture. I just like, like Shakespearean era Tudor stuff I find interesting, but like Downton Abbey drives me crazy. I just cannot bring myself to care about people in that era. Yeah. Same way some people don't like balls and carriages and therefore refuse to read Jane Austen. I just like don't like that stuff. But, and so... Tell me if I'm right or wrong. This is Edwardian England. Yes. It is it is the Downton Abbey era. It is yes. like that that pre-war economic boom. We still have kind of a class high class, low class system. The Foresight. Titanic is gonna happen. Foresight what? saga. Right. All that kind of stuff. Which when was the Foresight saga? When did that come out? I'm guessing this was pretty contemporaneous with all that too, right? Either that or it was looking back on it. I should know that off the top of my head, but I don't. Well, one star, one star. First published in 1922. So pretty much contemporaneous. Yeah. Uh, So. So this is like the era of croquet on the lawn, effeminate garden parties, and guys like Cecil glowering through monocles. and Yeah. Jeeves and Worcester, I guess Jeeves and Worcester kind of, even though those novels were written into the 1970s, they kind of perpetually exist in this this little world i guess am i crazy about that no you're i mean that's that's right and that's actually a good way for people today to understand it is kind of that downton abbey feel yeah that's the world that this was in and that's the world that forrester i think probably better than most of these guys we've read now who we've read we've read mogham yeah though that was not i mean i guess it was kind of in that world. We haven't read any Hardy yet, but he was a little bit before that. Yeah. Who else have we read from this era? Nobody I don't know. Really. Hardy's more down and dirty and low class and, and the people that he writes about. Yeah. I would say that more people are familiar with this, like you said, with the um, Wooster and Jeeves, but Ian Forster definitely had a troubled relationship to it and you can see it in the way that he criticizes it. I guess that's the other thing to make sure people realize is that the Bloomsbury group was a fairly political even though they weren't politically active, they were making political statements. And one of the things, just like Wilde and his group were reacting against Victorianism, these guys were reacting against the culture they were a part of, the Edwardian society. So, yeah. All right. Well. Tell you what I react against. Yeah. It's anyone who speaks a bad word about our patrons. We make sure to hunt them down. Yep. And Brandon has a very Brandon he has, has a, a set berry? of skills. He, oh, he a set has of a set of skills. Yeah, a particular set of skills. Yeah. In the particular, yeah. Yep, eating corn muffins. Yeah, I can't really make fat jokes. Shooting anymore. off finger guns. 
shooting off finger guns. They just did it. <laughs> Brandon is so skinny now. Thanks to me. I think it was just all my mockery over these years finally encouraged Brandon to do something about his morbid obesity. Yeah. And uh, We're pro-fat shaming here, I guess. Yeah. Well, we fat shame until it, you it, fat heal or whatever. It works, guys. Yeah, I just, it worked. I, I cried it all the way. Yeah. <laughs> Tears of gravy. Well, I'm glad that we could render you, render you that service. I'm glad that you've lost a lot of weight. Thank and you. And you look so great and really the best that you've ever looked. It's all downhill from here. You're right. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and no denying it. And no denying it. He's, he's got uh, like you can see a, like a cleft in his chin, folks. He's he's got like just the a little salt and pepper on the hair. Brandon is just like I do need I mean, a haircut. Yeah, we're he, he's got kind of. I was digging the the long hair vibe you got going on. Really? Yeah, no, no, it's awesome. Yeah. It's very it's very artsy. You know, our Oscar Wilde had a haircut like that. I mean, <laughs> it's it's just oh, look at this. There's a painting of old Brandon right behind Brandon. Painting of old Brandon. Oh, it's like the painting? Let's see. Yeah, it's the painting of young Brandon. Yeah, there he is. Anna. Yep. Yep. She did that for my wedding. I have a talented artist for a wife. Yeah. It's like you when you flip between the two pictures, it's like the Indiana Jones movie where the guy drinks from the wrong grail. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I did lose so much weight that I'm now just a skeleton. You are just a gaunt, <laughs> yeah. hollow-eyed, skeletal, cadaverous individual. But- we love you. And, you know, if we were a naughty podcast, we'd probably release a calendar of Brandon just like in jeans and like in a construction hat or something like that. And wow. uh, <laughs> we, could make, we could make billions. If we that could do way. the, bo- the booking in calendar, huh? Yeah, but we're not going to do that. The three of us just with books and <laughs> tastefully placed. <laughs> yes, tastefully placed. Yeah. Tastefully placed on the <laughs> nightstand. <laughs> no, not the nightstand. Wow. I was trying to make it. Wow. <laughs> Tastefully placed on the table next to the easy chair where we sit fully clothed reading those books. Because that's how yeah. people like to think of us and see us. Exactly. All right, guys. Thinking. Speaking of people that you like to think about and see, <laughs> let's think about our... Don't know what I think about that transition, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a five-star transition. Okay, let me pull up our patrons. Uh, Jake, how do you become a patron of the booking and maybe get yourself a shout out like we're about to do for these fine folks? Well, Nathan, I'll tell you, you go to patreon.com forward slash the booking and for as little as $10 a month, you can become a donor shout out. $10 a month gets you a donor shout out. Anything less than that will get you access to free behind the scenes content. Anything more, say $25 gets you a an annual t-shirt. Yeah, which... Should uh, probably get those out soon. Yep. So those will be coming in the mail to all of our $25 and up supporters. And then at $50 a month, you get the shout out, the annual t-shirt and personalized copies of every book we do on the booking, high quality versions shipped to your door well in advance of our shows so that you have time to read them and be up to speed with us as we go and build your library in the process while supporting a great show. And then beyond that, for $100 a month, you can select a book on our show yourself. Right. After we finish Remains of a View, we will be reading one that was selected by a fine uh, patron, and that is... Ender's Game. Ender's Game. Which is how we're ending the year. No, we got Fathers and Sons. And we got Fathers and Sons. We got a lot to get through. 
maybe we'll have to tiptoe into January just because this year's been weird with me and Jake moving to Evansville and all that stuff. But I don't know. I'd like to try and get through it. I think we can. I, I think don't we think can. we're going to get do like a thousand episodes on any of these books. Maybe Ender's so. Game. Chat. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll do a thousand episodes <laughs> on Ender's Game. We'll just do daily episodes for like how many years would that take to do a thousand? If we just be a lot, a three, three, yeah, basically three. Okay, well, actually, literally three. Not it is the change. podcast that would never ender. It would never ender. Wow. Howard's Ender's Game. Huh. What if? What if? Like somebody did like Jane Austen zombie thing or whatever, but it was a combination of Ender's Game and E.M. Forrester. How many copies do you think that that would sell? At least three. At least yeah. three, yeah. Because I see three right here in this room. Yeah, exactly. I, I would buy that if someone goes out and does it. All right. I've got my $15 idea. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's shout out these patrons. And why don't we say what color we think they'd look good wearing in if it was a jacket that they were wearing? Mm. Yes. I am looking up colors. <laughs> And we'll start, you, you know what? I don't think we have ever done this before. I'm making Bookening History today. I am going to go backwards through the Whoa. list of patrons. Yeah, I don't feel good about it. Actually, I feel pretty bad about it, but that's the way it has to be. We'll just, we'll try this once. We'll never do it again. So we are going to start today with our old friend, Jeremy, the dark hooded Lord of Death and his brooding bride. Black. Brandon, what co- what co- Black. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And uh, then we'll go to the Mysterious Phantom. Frankenstein. And All About the Benjamin. Uh, Gray. <laughs> and Emily Nightshade, the Hunter of Dreams. Almond is what I meant to say. Frankenstein just slipped out. And uh, she's Antique Brass. Antique Brass. Wow. She's Antique Brass, see? Sounds like old-timey slang for a, like a, a broad <laughs> or a dame or like, that dame's Antique Brass. All about or the I've got the 120 count Crayola crayon box color in front of me in alphabetical order. Jake, I refuse to believe that mm. that's true. I think no. you're just coming up with this. All about the Benjamins, Brandon. Dracula. All about the Benjamin. Did you, miss, <laughs> did you misspeak there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sultan Candy. Sultan. Mm, Sultan. Who doesn't love Sultan Candy? Ian the Dathomirian, Lord of Death. Apricot. Apricot. <laughs> Very Dathomirian, Lord of Death there. <laughs> Lady of the Crystal Lake. Sultan Forest Green. Sultan Forest Green. Christopher the Flower Hulk. Why are all these colors? Aquamarine. Aquamarine, a underrated color. I love me some aquamarine, except for when it's on the wrong thing or the wrong person, but just taken as a color, I like it quite a bit. And no, I will not be providing commentary on every one of these colors. (laughs) Who did did I just say? (laughs) I don't know. Did I say Christopher the Flower Hulk yet? Probably not. Aquamist. Aquamist. Yummy. Pegalodon. Asparagus. <laughs> <Yuck>. This <laughs> is the dawning of the age of asparagus. Age of asparagus. Stephen, dot, dot, dot. Oh, is it me? Yeah. Uh, Arabian teal. Arabian teal. You are going to put my commentary yeah. on every single one of these. <laughs> <laughs> Thor Ragnajosh. Atomic tangerine. Nice. Atomic Tangerine, I have Atomic no commentary. Atomic Tangerine. Hey, I like this one. This is a good donor shout-out. I'm calling it already. Flight of the Valerie. <laughs> Jolie Peach. <laughs> Jolie Peach. <laughs> you are my Jolie Peach. La Peach. La Peach. I could eat a peach for hours. Annie, are you okay? Get your gun. 
Banana Mania. Sorry, Annie. Uh, Matthew the Mind Flayer. <laughs> this is either Light Yellow or Lieutenant Yellow. I don't know which one. <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant Yellow, reporting for duty. <laughs> I love Lieutenant Yellow. He's a good man. John the Cosmic King of Chaos. Beaver. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Ben Solo and Kylo Ren. Raspberry Ice. Raspberry Ice. Mm-mm. Try some delicious raspberry ice. Ryan the Terror of Texas, an Eric of the Cream and Crimson, who no longer is stuck in the cold. Please send cheese, however. Bittersweet. Bittersweet. Mm. What is color is bittersweet? I don't know, but I have the color values here, and I will look it up. I guess it's something in the it's red like range. A, it's in a coral reef kind of. Like a pink it's like kind of? like a coral. Yeah. Pink. It's, I think coral is the right. There you go. Uh, the other saxophone, Alex. We haven't even gotten to the first saxophone, Alex, but we're talking about the other saxophone, Alex, and of course our good friend Dubstep Danny. Pedal pink. Pedal pink. Like P-E-D-A-L, like pedal to the pink. Oh, yeah. Pedal. No, pedal. Pedal to the pink. Pedal. Pedal. Pedal pink. Uh, you saxophone. know what? what? Yes, sir. P- pedal pink with mm-hmm. a D for saxophone, Alex. Petal pink with a T for Dubstep Danny. Nice. Very nice. Well done. Thank you. And saxophone, Alex. The regular saxophone, Alex. Uh, black was already said, wasn't it? So I'm going to go with blue. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, John Bobadillo, Bob Diggity, and Captain Tennille, his mate. This could also be their new rap name. I'm not sure. T. Emerald. T. Emerald in the his house. Yes, I was born. Well, I was born in the 80s. But I yes, I lived through the 90s. Jacqueline, the librarian, barbarian. Bluebell. Bluebell. Oh, that's, that's nice. I like that. Also a delicious ice cream. Yes. As old Brandon remembers, but new From Brandon. Texas. Just eats asparagus. This is the dawning of the age of asparagus. Commentary on all colors. Cold Steel Cody. He's already got kind of a color in his name, but what color is he? Mustard. Mustard. <laughs> Cold Steel Cody Mustard. Mustard is delicious. Tyler, the mm. keeper of eternal darkness and Laura, the keeper of eternal light. Blue green. Blue <laughs> green. I love a, I love a good blue green. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Burnt orange. Burnt orange. Oh, you took that one for me. That's in that's coming up. Maddie, 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 Matt Man. Is it up to me then? Blue yeah. Violet. It's up Ooh. to you, and you came through with blue violet. What can you do? Eric the Kate Eric and Kate, the Camp Champ Kings, who are warm and love bees. Sherbert. Sherbert orange? It's like an orange pink. Oh, wow. Timothy the Rider at Dawn. Blutiful. Blutiful. Yes, he is. <laughs> Jay of Rack and Ruin. I'm not gonna top that, man. Uh butter. <laughs> butter. <laughs> not with that kind of stuff, you're not gonna top it. Butter. Uh, top of many do... things with butter. Podcast keeps getting butter and butter. Okay. Uh, we said Timothy the Writer Don. Jay of Rack and Ruin. Blush. Mm. Blush. <laughs> I guess that's the style of pink. Return of the Jedediah. We're now going to be exploring all f- shades of gold. Rio Maze. Rio Maze. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Brick Red. Brick Red. Brick Red. Me Tarzan. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey the Texas Ranger. Real gold. Real gold. Yeah, just real gold. Yeah, it's like the stuff that conservatives As opposed to fool's gold. Advertise on their podcasts. <laughs> Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Brown. <laughs> we agree that Anthony who is cold and hates life liberty and the pursuit of cheese got the worst color 
so far. You know, I think. Yeah, I think, so. I think he deserves it for hating cheese and life and liberty, but also it's just where we were. It's pure coincidence. Well, came after Brick Red. That's that's what you get for coming after Brick Red. Yeah, that's what you (laughs) get for coming after Brick Red, Anthony. (laughs) Anthony, who hates life, liberty, pursuit of cheese, and Brick Red. All right, the fair and fragrant maiden, Chloe. Not to be confused with the old, this is New Sunflower. New Sunflower, all right. There you go, fair and fragrant maiden, Chloe. Far and away the most feminine of our... Listeners, at least in your name, Marichip. This is where I would say burnt orange, but Brandon took it, so it's burnt sienna. Burnt mm. sienna, a classic in the color world. Everybody loves Noah, or no, everyone does love Noah Constrictor. He's our next patron, Noah Constrictor. Victorian gold. Victorian gold. We've got, this guy's got a color literally in his name. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan, lavender's blue. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan, I love you too. Dylan, Dylan, I love you too. And he gets, as it happens, Cadet Blue. Cadet Blue. Very nice. Lavender's Cadet Blue. And we have finally reached the original-ish list of patrons, the people that I sort of think of as the OGs, starting with working our way backwards, as we are Professor and Lady X. Antique Gold. Antique Gold. Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Canary. Canary is a flavor of yellow, I'm going to guess. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Lace gold. Lace gold. What's lace gold? It's it's like a really brown gold. I don't care for the name. It's not evocative. DJ Sammy G. Um, Caribbean green. Caribbean green. Another good color. Hard to go wrong with green, unless it's pea green. There's another t-shirt. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Oyster. Sorry, Ryan. Sorry, Judith. You deserved better. Nathan, not me. Carnation pink. Carnation pink is a pretty color. Council Prime Adam. Bright champagne. Bright champagne for my real friends and real pain for my sham friends. Uh, Fairy Princess of Wonder and Ma- Happiness, Mother Beth. Sharice? Ch- Ch- mm-hmm. Sharice, 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 Sharice. I'm begging you, please don't take my man. Uh-oh. Jane, Katie, who are cold and love cheese and also C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces. Tannery. What's tannery? Read what's there. It's like all right, all right. I really want to ask light questions. red. Really light red. John and Jill, Little Baby Max. Cerulean. Cerulean. David's Mighty Men Trucking. We've almost ran through this list, and it's a long list. Daphne Rose. Daphne. I'm only in the C's on mine, buddy. Yeah, he's only in the C's in his, well, buddy. You, you, chose, you chose better than I did. You chose wisely. Uh, the Keith Master. Chestnut. Chestnut. Hey, little chestnut. Hey, you, and you channeled the love uh, what's that? his face, so I channeled the other face. Yeah. When one person channels a face, it's only proper that the other person channels a separate face. There's another t-shirt. Andrew Nestor of the Lovebirds. Merry Go Blue. Merry Go Blue. Lily of the Valley. Copper. Copper. That's a nice You're strong my best color. friend, Todd. And you're mine too, Copper. <laughs> we'll always be friends forever. Jimmy Beam and Try a not little to cry, people. Annie Oakley. They're all sobbing into their iPhones. Sage. Sage. Yes, this is true. 
Uh, the Immortal Chelsea E. Cornflower. Cornflower. That is a nice one. Little Anthony's Cigar Store. Ooh. He needs to get... He needs to get... Oh, man. What does he need to get? Have we done Apple Green yet? No. No. Well, that's what he's getting. I don't really like getting. Apple Green. Neither do I, but that's what he's getting. Well, if what you're getting is the urge for some fine cigars, folks, I haven't told people this in a while, you should go to 114 West Magnolia Avenue, Suite G as in golf. That's G as in golf, G as in girl, On in Auburn, Alabama. The zip code is 36830. You just go to Little Anthony's Cigar Store. You buy yourself some cigars. Great price. Great smoking. Could not make a better plan than to do that. Unless your plan was to shout out the artful Anthony Dodger. Cotton candy. Cotton candy. Vaguely washed out pink. And finally, closing it out in this weird experiment and backwards podcasting. We have Robert and Rhonda, none other than the lovebirds themselves. Well, the only thing that would fit them would be um, the only one I've got left on my list. Forest Green. <laughs> didn't Jake already say that? Oh, yeah, no, Forest man, green. I didn't. I just finished the C's. Yeah, Nathan. I made it A through C. Hey, I guess it made I'd be ready to start my... the D's on my next go. Oh, you might have said Forest Green. Forest like Green is on my list, and it is one, two, three, four, five, six colors away. Six colors away. So we'd need 12 pa- more patrons in order to have gotten to Forest Green. All right, us, folks, you know what to do. Get us to Jake's Forest Green. <laughs> get us to Forest Green, and you'll be able to listen to an even better podcast than the one you just listened to. Even That was a good donor shout-out. Better. That was pretty good. That was one of the better ones in recent memory. I think it's been a, dec- a pretty good episode today, guys. I think so. I feel good about this episode. I feel good about this episode. I feel good about you guys being my friends. I feel good about the world that we live in and the state of it. I feel good about what else do I feel good about? What do you feel guys? What else do you guys feel good about? The holidays. The holidays. Yeah, the holidays. In fact, I think my wife is making stuffing right now. Wow. She's drawing she's drying bread. Wow. In order to make the stuffing, I take it. I guess. She didn't agree with me that it was stuffing. All she said is, I'm drying bread. So maybe that's just what she does. Did she just accidentally get some liquid on bread? Sounds like she's explaining if you'd be quiet. Yeah, shut up, Brandon. (laughs) What are you doing? So she's making stuff. It's a a part of the process of stuffing making. She didn't want people to think she's just drying bread. Okay. She's, She's making stuffing. I'm sorry. Yeah. We are well. That's what we started with. She's the one that introduced the whole concept of drying bread. I know. We came back to where we started. <laughs> <laughs> Things come full circle once again yep. on the bookening. <laughs>